Hello and welcome back to Syria's Lost Generation, a podcast about young people displaced by war. This show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the humanitarian groups World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. I'm your host, Liam Cunningham. In the first five episodes of the podcast, we visited Syria, Lebanon and Jordan to learn about the plight of some of the more than 12 million people who've been displaced by a decade of conflict. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Hassam El-Haraki, a friend of mine from Syria who fled the war five years ago at age 16 and now lives near Stuttgart in Germany. But before that, we're once more joined by David Enders, a Beirut-based journalist who has covered the war in Syria and has been our guide to the conflict so far. David, welcome back. Hi, Liam. As we conclude our series, do you have any thoughts about Syria's future or what comes next for those who have been displaced? Well, in the last few days, I've reached out to some of my Syrian colleagues and friends from my time working in the country and covering the war. One thing they all have in common is that they no longer live in Syria. Some are wanted by both the government and rebel groups that were intolerant of any dissent. All of them have simply gone in search of better, safer, more stable lives. They're all still involved in making films, researching, writing about the conflict, or managing humanitarian efforts in Syria. And they may have left, but what is happening in Syria is very much still front and center in their minds. Another thing they have in common is that they don't see this ending anytime soon. This is Nidal, a friend of mine who grew up in Damascus and is now living in the U.S. He was forced to leave the country in 2012. Oh, it, it might go on for more than 10 years even, like maybe for other 40 years, David. I don't see it like really close to an end. The end of this, what, if, if what's going on in Syria has only one solution, that al-Assad should go away and then start a new chapter in Syria, whether like to continue a civil war that would end in a way or another at the end. But like an Assad in power, and this is going on, this is not going to end any anytime soon at all. I mean, he, he destroyed the whole country. He, he humiliated people. He imprisoned. He, he killed. He, I mean, he is... He is a murderer, and he should go to the court. He should be imprisoned and held accountable. But as long as he's in power, this is going to go like on and on, and maybe on and off and off and on until he's gone, until something changed. That's disheartening. It is. And I think really one of the hardest things for Syrians is coming to terms with the fact that their revolution was hijacked by outside powers. As long as Russia, Turkey, Iran, and other countries continue to play a large role there, there's not much hope for a better Syria. This is Humam, a filmmaker I met after he was injured in Homs in 2012, in the same rocket strike that killed British journalist Marie Colvin. He lives outside Syria now, but when I caught up with him, he was working in the north on a film about life in one of the camps there. I see two wars in Syria. The first war is between the international powers, in this war, I think Syrians has nothing to do with it because we have no choice in that war. And we have another war uh, with, um, for us as Syrians, it's, it's some kind of uh, challenge to rebuild our country. I just want to play one more clip of Humam because even with all the despair, he does have some hope. When I go to the camps and see all these children, uh, 
the life they, they live is really not not easy life. But still, uh, you find many of these children trying to have a dream of Syria. I mean, although uh, most of them, they have uh, known nothing in their lives but war, but still, somehow, they have a dream that we want to have a future in our country. So I see hope in the future. And I think if you want to have a bright future, you need to work for that. So I try to build this future with other Syrians, and that's what gives me hope. But Liam, let's get back to Hassam. How did you meet him? I first met Hassam, uh, this incredibly impressive young man. And he was, I think, just into his 16, 16 and a half years old. Uh, he had left one of the camps without permission, him and his mother, and had managed to get a small flat in uh, Idlib, uh, this town, I think it's about an hour and a half away from the capital of Man. And uh, we met him on the street because he was f- fearful that the Jordanian police would see our little van arriving and it would bring eyes upon him. And if he was found, him and his mum would be put back into the camp. And uh, my handlers at World Vision, who had introduced me to him, said, you're going to like this guy. He's a fantastic guy. And they was, it's one of those things when people talk about another human being, you kind of say, oh, he must be impressive because they smiled when they mentioned his name. And true enough, when I met him, um, was this extraordinary bundle of energy, this incredibly positive, self-confident young man. We went around to his apartment, met his mom. Uh, and we were talking and he had a, a mobile phone in front of him with a, a full-size keyboard. And every day, and he was religious about this, every day in the afternoon he would sit down and do at least two hours, perhaps a lot more. And he was learning German off YouTube, uh, which is, of, of course, incredibly impressive, especially from a young man, a teenager who you would imagine be out playing with his friends and, and just being a young man. And he had this level of um, of discipline. What I didn't know at the time, he had already done this with English. So when he was in the camp, he was teaching himself off his mobile phone uh, to improve his English. Uh, and now he was moving on to a second language. And um, he spoke incredibly positively about um, how to improve his situation. He, he gave himself a number of projects. His main project when I met him um, was to expedite his his getting out of Jordan and, and um, reuniting with his family uh, in Germany. His brother, they had been separated um, when they arrived to Jordan and his brother uh, was the first one to get out of the country and get to Stuttgart. So that gave them a kind of um, an end game to, um, to arrive. Uh, at least somebody would be there, a friendly face, a family member. Um, and the trouble was that uh, his passport was going to be up in January and I had met him, I think, in August. Uh, so he hadn't got a lot of time um, that he would have travel papers to um, to get to Germany um, with his mother. Um, so, um, but he wasn't defeatist about things at all. Um, it, it was it was just um, it was another level of difficulty that has had in his, his life that needed to be uh, overcome. And it's very difficult to turn away from somebody who has that faith in themselves and has that sunny disposition and who hasn't been beaten down by circumstance. Um, And and just my admiration was, and continues to be, 
um, huge towards this young man. And the conversation we're about to hear is recent. Uh, had you spoken to him in a while? Because it seems like, uh, had anything changed in his life? <laughs> you could say that, David. Every time Hossam messages me, I kind of, I, I look through, I close one eye and I press the, the button and I have a look at what, what particular thing he's, um, he's accomplished. Uh, and every time it's just something that you kind of go, where the hell did that come from? And one of them was that he did tell me, I'm thinking of becoming an actor, which I, I immediately panicked uh, because it's a ridiculous career choice. I just love the rollout of his life. They're, they're going from, from disaster, from almost certain disaster, have, from having his life turned upside down, nearly getting killed, nearly losing his family. You know, I think he's got the acting bug out of his way, thank God. But he's getting on with his life. Um, he's, um, you know, he's got the prospect of, of, of things that us, we take for granted. And, uh, you know, Hassam is not a, he, he's, he's not unique. There's, there's, there's ladies and gents all over, uh, they're displaced who are getting on with their lives and they deserve so much better. They deserve the chances that Hassam has had for normality. Okay. Enough from me. Let's hear the conversation. Um, I started asking uh, Hassam what life was like for him in Syria before he got displaced. So um, before the war begins, my father was a wealthy man, I would say. So he was getting into business and I would say we had money. So I'm proud of it because other people in Syria... They don't have money and it's stressful and it's it's hard, difficult. But our family somehow we, we had money, so we lived we lived well. Yeah. A lot of people in the West, um, just lacking information, would have thought that people in the Middle East, refugees from a war, were goat herders, were subsistence farmers. And it's taken me a while, as as it has with you, Hassan, to to convince people that there was university students, there was middle class people, upper class people. I heard I heard somebody use the term in Syria that people were at the opera on Saturday night and their houses were bombed on Sunday. There was a all stratas of society, all levels of society were affected by this thing, as there is for every war. Exactly. So um I was eleven and um we were getting news about the war is escalating. The war just got more and more. What I actually really remember is um, after the, the Friday pray, we, we go to pray in the mosque. So when we go back to, to our home, as we were walking home, a car on the side of the village got bombed. A car. So because um, nearby our village uh, was um, a military base. And this car just got bumped. Nobody knows why. So after uh, checking out and seeing what's the problem, it was just a car, a truck, which is uh, transporting gas bottles to um, inside the village, which was not allowed. So nobody knew about it. And inside the truck was a whole family. And the truck got just bombed. Man, you can't imagine. The people just rushed into this truck and they wanted to help but 
you know what, what happened? The military base just started to shoot at this truck. And uh, the people were scared, so they, they couldn't do anything. And the people, like uh, the bosses of our village, they they wanted to speak to the military base. They went there, they spoke to the military base. They said, we just want to take the, the bodies from the truck. So just let us. They said, okay, you can go. They went there, like four people. They got shelled with a temperature missile. Heat-seeking missile, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they just died there. And this is something I saw with my own eyes. And like this moment, I just knew a war is just starting in Syria. And that was the first violence you, you saw in your village or the first time you came face to face. How long was it before what happened in your school? What, what was the time difference? So after this happened... The village were taken from the military base. So we had to flee from our village to another village. And our village is named Al-Mulayha Al-Garbiya, okay? It's in, in south of Dara. So we went to Saida. It's in another village. So we stayed there. We stayed there. We had a house and the people were um, just welcoming there. And they said, okay, hey, people just have a house and live your life, okay? It's no problem. We fled inside Syria. We were refugees inside Syria, okay? We lived three, four months there, and I got to go to school. And so the school just got bombed. I mean, you were in class at the time, weren't you? Tell us what happened. Well, at this day, we were writing our English uh, final exams. It's, it was just the final day of, of school. And um, planes began striking, bombing the school. Man... You can't imagine this moment. For me, it was like, I am dead. So I was 14 and um, I told myself, man, you are dead. While I was watching the schoolyard, I saw somebody lying on the ground. And it seemed to me like someone I knew. So I rushed up with some of uh, other classmates to him and I couldn't believe it, man. I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, it was a very good friend of mine and my cousin. It's a terrible thing when, when your parents have turned around and, and they're, they're saying to you, we need to have some normality for our children. We need to have some routine. So send, send, we need to send the children to school. And then the place of safety that you send your children to gets bombed and the teachers get injured or killed and your friends get killed in a place of safety. Exactly. So um, the moment I walked home, my parents thanked God that I was still alive. And it was really the last straw for my father. Okay. Okay. So this is the moment my father decided. My father was saying, it's not safe. We have to get somewhere else. My father said, guys, we have to do this. Uh, trust me. So um, a cousin of um, ours gave us details of a smuggler. Uh, me and my dad and uh, mom and the three brothers had the same opinion as my father. But my married sisters stayed with their husbands. Um, the first step was driving out into uh, the desert of Ledger. It's just a desert of rocks. Anyway, trucks drove us as far as they could. And from there on, we had to walk. We stayed a night in this in a small building, waiting for another group. Well, for sure, um, I couldn't sleep there where, uh, because there were 75 people in the small room. 30 more people arrived in the morning. 
and um, the smugglers didn't tell us how far they would be going. So we didn't bring a lot of water uh, and many of us left any extra clothes or food behind too. Because no one wanted to be the slowest actually. And Hassan, is this the point you had uh, your backpacks on? You had like the hiking backpacks? I remember you telling me. Exactly. So um, I was told by the smuggler, hey, he, he looked at me and he laughed. He said, mm, oh dear. I was like, you just told me it's one kilometer. He said, mm, I don't know about that. But if I were you, I would have just throw this away <laughs> and took like uh, the dottles or something. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So I told my father. My father said, it's hot. It's really hot. So you throw them, throw them away. We They said like two kilometer, kilometers and we're there. So my father was sure we we're arriving in two kilometers. Anyway, the, the smugglers were saying, as I told you, one kilometer and we will arrive. But they were lying, absolutely lying. It's a good technique. It's a good technique. If you if you want to uh, get somebody to do your um, goal, uh, you have to lie to him. Anyway, um, they, if they said a 30 kilometer or 40 kilometer to go, we would have given up. Like we would have said, man, this is Ledger. We know Ledger. So um, that morning we walked 30 kilometers. 30. We were running out of the food yeah. and the water. Everybody had water, just drank it but absolutely in secret, so uh, nobody uh, else sees that, because if anybody sees that, it would get like really risky for him, because everyone will just attack him and uh, want the water. You're a, you're 105 people walking in the desert. Yeah, exactly. So pregnant women, um, uh, old people, um, um, and a guy um, who was like really old, he uh, ran out of water, and uh, they just forgot him behind and you know what yeah they forgot him behind and uh, um, his sons they looked after him and uh, they didn't find him any anymore so they told the smuggler and the one smuggler went back and he said guys if you want to win uh, go back it's uh, I, i'm not going with you because i found him dead so his children were with the father the father had a diabetic attack no insulin exactly and no water so the children of the, the like uh, they were like really like 18 17 and i think a daughter which was like i think 14 so um they just started crying my mother said because i was like in the front of the group i was the youngest so i had this backpack i throw it away so i was like really the quickest and at some point i was walking and this women walk to me and say please please Hussam, please Take my child, so just carry my child. I see you're just fit and you can walk. I can't walk anymore. So I was like, it's a child, it's a responsibility. I can't I can't carry this child. So when this when these mothers are saying to you, please take my child and make sure my child gets the safety, they're saying this because they think they are going to die in the desert and they want Absolutely their children to live absolutely so this this woman just come to me and give me her child this very little child and you're 14 at this stage yeah i was 14 so i took the child and i i watched the mother the whole time if she walks i walk if she doesn't walk i stay because 
you can't imagine this, this is not your baby it's not your child so um and and she had like a backpack so i told the women please throw your backpack away because it's not realistic yeah. So uh, you can't walk yourself. She said, this is the food of the child, the baby. Yeah. This is the milk and the, the, the bunch of other things. Yeah. I did it. I did it like for, for, for seven kilometers and I couldn't anymore. So I, 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 I went to the, to, to the woman and, and told her, um, can I, I, I give your baby to, to someone else? To, to someone else. So I went to, the, to my brother, my older brother, Ahmed, and I, and I gave him the baby. Ahmed, my brother, was like really shocked. It's not our baby, man. So I was like, it's the baby of this woman. Let's just follow her the whole time. And we just changed. So I walked back and I walked for and uh, the whole time. So tell me, Hassan, tell me what what happened uh, when uh, you... T I remember you saying something about uh, when nightfall came, when the nighttime came. Exactly. So... Um, Almost um, at the, the the sunset, we were entering a very dangerous area. It's very guarded, good guarded area from uh, Assad's uh, troops. So um, um, we went in this area like seven kilometers. We walked in this area. And as I mentioned, uh, the smuggler told us, hey, we have to be very quiet and we are not allowed to do anything. So if the child cry, like just... I don't know, put him down, do something with him. Yeah. And he told us also that similar groups got killed in this area. So we have to really take care of ourselves. Oh man, uh, this area was really well guarded. So we we were seen and uh, we got spotted. And um, <laughs> the shelling started. And in, in the dark, man, in the dark, you, you can't see anything. So uh, my brother... He found a bottle, and um, unfortunately, he thought uh, it would be um, uh, water, and he drinks uh, finally, and uh, everything's all right. But he, he he drank from the the bottle, and it was poisoned, and he got poisoned. And um, he told us the, the whole time we we carried him. My uh, two other brothers uh, carried him because I, I I had to watch out for my parents. Yeah. My mother and my father and my uh, two other brothers, they just had to carry him against his will because he, he said the whole time, leave me here. Hey, please, because if you, um, I'm, I'm a burden. So you are carrying me and the shelling started and uh, just leave me here. I, one man dies, but not uh, the whole family. So we were like, no, no, no. And um, um, somehow I heard the smuggler just talking to somebody on the phone and he was telling him hey please please have a million and come have a million and come have a, have a million and come he was pleading to him and uh, it seemed like the truck driver w wouldn't want to uh, he, he doesn't want to come the truck driver didn't want to come to pick all you guys up yeah yeah he, he, he was scared too he said uh, all the shelling and all the bombing i'm not coming you give me two million, I'm not coming. This truck was going to take you to the Jordanian border, is that correct? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. After the Rocky Way, after 70 kilometers walking. So my father jumped out of the, of the nowhere. So I was like, oh, father, what are you doing? So he, he was talking to the smuggler and he told him like that, hey, you know where this truck driver lives? Let's go to him and like try to... Persuade. Yeah, exactly. Um, him and and tell him, hey, come. If he doesn't want to come, if it's absolutely no way, we just kill him and um and um, take the like one man dies, 
and 105 survive. So the smuggler was, all right, all right, good idea somehow. So from your life of going to school, you are now having to think about, and your family is having to think about murdering people to stay alive. And people in your group are having to think about leaving their parents in the desert, having to keep quiet so you won't be spotted by military and, and shelled. And I mean, these are for a 14 year old boy and all the other young kids and parents that are there. These are the, the stress. The, it's appalling that families would have to go through this. And you don't even know if you're going to die from lack of water, lack of food, shelling. I mean, it's a terrible journey, isn't it, Azam? Well, um, um, I think people, normal human beings, they just forget bad things. When bad things happen, these human beings, they just try to forget about the, the bad things. So um, as I'm telling you, in 2021 now, I had to go to my mother and yeah. ask her about the details of this journey because I really forgot about it. I like not every detail. Yeah, I just I just burned it in my mind. I just want I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it because it was as miserable as I'm telling you. It's post traumatic stress disorder is where you for want of a better well you try and compartmentalize the place it somewhere that you don't have to deal with it because it's horrific. But what happens is it comes out at some stage. It's a it's a dreadful dreadful thing. It's 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 a mental health issue. It's appalling. Absolutely, man. Anyway, uh, well, I just want to tell the death uh, uh, story journey to to the end, and I just want to complete it to the end. We were just, like, really scared. The smuggler told us, hey, guys, if the truck driver doesn't come, and, like, either you walk away and try you to survive yourself, or... If you stay here, I will try to protect you with my rifle. But I don't think I can, like, do against uh, 100 soldiers or something. Because when they arrive to you, when they arrive to you, you have to choose how to get murdered. With a knife or get shot. Look, they, they said exactly like that. At this moment... My father jumped like out of the middle of the nowhere and just begged him, go to this truck driver and bring him or just shoot him. So the smuggler was like, mm, okay, good idea. I'm doing that, man. And he went and we were just praying to God that this smuggler, this very one good smuggler, I think, just don't, doesn't, doesn't flee alone. And somehow, a miracle happens. In the morning, we heard, uh, we heard a truck coming. <laughs> we heard a tr truck coming. And somehow, the truck driver agreed to come. And um, we went uh, inside the truck. And we drove like one kilometer. And so, we reached the Jordanian borders. And we were lucky to uh, be processed immediately. It was like a miracle. Where did they put you in uh, Zatari or Azraq? The day after we were taken to our first home in Jordan, it was the Azraq camp, man. Actually, my mother just dropped down and she was just crying, man. When she saw all the huts 
what is this? She was like, what is this? But I mean, you lived a, a very comfortable life, didn't you? You had friends coming around and your swimming pool and all that sort of stuff to have everything taken off you. In Syria. Including the possibility of a future. Yeah. yeah in Syria. Yeah. Exactly, man. So um, one thing I want to address about um, the Ezra camp, I want to talk about somebody. I think I think you know him. It's Mitrib. It's my English teacher. So uh, he worked at the Relief International in uh, the Ezra camp. Mm. And, uh, well, somehow by a miracle, because uh, Syrians, I don't know if you know about that, they don't uh, just speak English. They are really bad English speakers. And somehow I met I met, I met my my teacher, Metep, and uh, he's a very well-educated um, um, teacher. He was a translator in Syria. And, uh, man, what a teacher. Man. So uh, this teacher, he watched out for me step by step. We talked every day in English. He was a gift from God, Hassan, was he? Absolutely, man. Um, he, he taught and supported and guided me, like, really carefully until I became a um, perfection piece for him. Until I became the man you are interviewing today. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, and where is he now? He he preferred to staying in the camp. He's still in the camp. He's still in Azraq. Yeah, man, and uh, has been for seven years there, giving so much of his time and effort, support high school students, and trying just to uh, make the world a better place, man. Um, although he can get a scholarship and go um um, um to Europe, but he just preferred to stay there and just build generation, which I really, really, really want to express my gratitude for him. Uh, Sam, you were you had already got some family already in in Stuttgart at that stage. But when I met you, it was very difficult for you because you had left the camp with without permission. You also had a problem with your your passport uh, was going to be up in January. You were on a very short window uh, on your passport, and once your passport was out of date, it was going to be impossible for you to travel. I know, you, and of course, the Syrian embassy in Amman. Um, you were going to run out and you couldn't replace papers because of the war. So you needed to get out really quickly. Or if you were caught by the Jordanian authorities, you and your mother would have been put back in Azraq. Absolutely. You, If you remember that back in the days, I told the guys, I told Neem, and I told the, the, the World Vision um, uh, guys, don't bring police with you. Yeah, you know, I know. Because uh, I was scared of police. If they uh, get us, we will just get to deported back to, to the camp. And if we go back to the camp, we will never, ever again get a permit to, to go outside of the camp. Yeah, I remember you told me your papers came through because we were. It was very difficult for us to help, and uh, I yeah, I remember you you contacted me and you said you're on your way and there was a stop off. Tell us about the the plane journey when you because you'd never been on an airplane before, had you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, we somehow booked the cheapest plane um, on earth. Um, I don't know what uh, airlines it was, but I think this, it was the Greece one. We stopped in Greece like two times uh, because an emergency uh, thing happened in in Greece, and we had to, ch to change the airplane. So anyway, it it was it was much better than the Jordanian Syrian uh, trip, the death wave journey. After that, man, I can remember this moment. I took uh, two selfies walking out of the airplane in Germany. This was the first time stepping in Germany. 
I think you sent a photograph to me when you were on the plane. I couldn't believe it. I was really happy for you, man. I was so happy for you. It was brilliant. Lovely, man. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it happened. It was a, a dream coming true. Yeah. And uh, look at me, man. That was Hassam al-Haraki, who fled Syria at the age of 16 and now lives in Germany. This is our last episode of Syria's Lost Generation. I hope we managed to convey something new and interesting about the war and about the plight of young people who find themselves displaced across the region. The show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with World Vision International and the Syrian American Medical Society. Both are non-political groups purely focused on the humanitarian aspects of the crisis. Our producers are Rob Sachs, Alison Meekham and Dan Efron. David Enders reported the stories you're hearing on the show. Thanks to Laura Gemmel, Josephine El-Haddad, Elias Abuata, John Doutzenberg, Lobna Hassari and Angie Maraud for helping bring the series to life. Also thanks to Final Step Studio in Beirut for production help. And thanks to you, our listeners. I'm Liam Cunningham.